Jaden, come here a minute. Okay, Jaden, listen, I wanted you to help me with something because I'm trying to make this like fresh, new, cool, like opening to my podcast. Why are you smiling? <laughs> opening to my podcast. And um, yeah, so I just want to try it a few different ways and you tell me which way you, that you think is the best, okay? Okay. Hi-ho, welcome to Failing to Save the Earth. Um, I'm not sure that we have the right to that voice. <laughs> it's like a frog, you know, like. Um, I think it sounds a little too close. Okay, 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 try this again. Okay, so I, 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 the situation really is not I want to pretend to be something else, but I just want to like, uh, like, I don't know how to make it. So I can make it like this. It'd be like, hey, welcome to failing to save the earth. Um, I mean, I guess that one we can get like, we won't get in legal trouble for. <laughs> I can go the opposite way. It'd be like, <laughs> welcome to failing to save the earth. Because we are losing. <laughs> I don't think that's the message. <laughs> it's not the message. Okay. Um, welcome to Failing to Save the Earth. This is episode number two called Failing Climate. Enjoy. This podcast is for all the water and land protectors out there, those who have struggled in the past or are struggling now to protect our natural world. The podcast is devoted to the idea that failure is not possible when you're standing up for life. In the spirit of those who came before us and for the love of those who will come after us, this podcast is for us to come together, to heal, to forgive, to dream, to find our power, and to lift up the stories of the earth come alive to defend herself, because that's what each of us are. Welcome. Join us in the circle, please. Hi there. This is Sharif Whiteland, uh, your, your host for this podcast. This is this is number two of our Failing to Save the Earth podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, last time with Karen Savage. And I have a whole new co-host co here today, Ramon. And we have we have a, a bit of a history because uh, Ramon was actually came out to Lowy Lobby and was one of the uh, water protectors out there that was egregiously uh, uh, charged with a felony and has had to deal with that. We, those charges, thankfully, were actually dropped. But I'm so excited to have you here. And I was wondering if you might just introduce yourself there, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ramon Mejia. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm the anti-militarism national organizer with uh, Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. Um, I've been uh, on staff for the last uh, two years. Got a family and got a kid in college and a kid in, a, in middle school. And, uh, you know, just trying to make our way. So what's the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance? Can you tell us a little more about that? Grassroots Global Justice Alliance is a left alliance of grassroots organizations from around the country. It's uh, over 60 organizations um, where we essentially bring our members together to converge and essentially build out a strategy for wanting to engage, you know, on a national level, whether it be through climate justice, through anti-militarism work, through fem uh, grassroots feminisms, and also, uh, you know, essentially movement building with uh, other national alliances and international alliances as well. Right. Uh, yeah, I've worked in the peripheral. I've, you know, uh, worked with y'all before and on other things and yeah, always come Great, in a good way. It was a really, really um, impressive organization. Okay, so here, I, I've been playing this game with every co-host that comes on. Okay, well, it's a word association game. So what I do is I'm going to say a list of words to you, and I just want you to tell me like the first word that comes to your mind. And sometimes we might talk about it a little more, but sometimes we might just move on to the next word. Does this sound fun? Yeah, that works. You're lying, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's been fun for everybody, but at the same time, everybody's like, wait, I, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> okay. Your first word is peace. Peace. I think uh, for nonviolence. 
I mean, I think that, you know, that that nonviolence comes up a lot as a word. Um, And I I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about that, they, 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 a lot of times that they'll put that in the same, you know, thought, think of like Martin Luther King Jr. And like, I, I noticed like sometimes the stories, they'll make it sound like the use of nonviolence is something that happened back in the sixties. And I don't know what they think we're doing now, (laughs) but, and I know there's a lot of like, difference in people, the way they, they think of nonviolence, how, how would you, how do you think of nonviolence? Um, no. So I think when I, when I, when I thought of the word peace and, and, and associated with nonviolence, I think what I meant, what, what, uh, what it comes up to me is like the act of like, like being in peaceful and uh, being, it, being in like engaging with other people from a, uh, from a position of like mutual respect and understanding and, and empathy, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's how I kind of view it. But then also that comes from like the, from just from a kind of, I don't know if it's like a person level or whatnot, but the reason I associate peace and nonviolence is the fact that, you know, so many of the systems that that look to um, extract and, and profit off of us is violently kind of does it in a very violent and, and destructive way. So it's, um, that's how I, I was kind of like viewing it on one hand, like that, to see peace is to be, you know, to be nonviolent in the sense of like the systems that are trying to harm us. And then how I view it as far as like um, nonviolence in the sense of like those that aren't trying to harm me, then, you know, I have no, no reason for, for, for me to de- have to defend myself. Right. Exactly. Um, that's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Your next word, justice. Equitable. I think justice is, I think for me, I don't know, you know, kind of, I, maybe I associated it with balance in the sense also like equitable, like in the sense that, that essentially that justice is when everyone is able to enter this world from the same place in the sense that not being like um, marginalized or, or persecuted or, or attacked. Right. So it's like, we all have like this, this ability to, you know, for justice. I think that that's kind of how I associated it with. Right on. All right. Here's a big one. Climate change happening now like <laughs> i think that's yes. uh, <laughs> happening now yeah i kind of see yeah climate change now like that's how i think uh, the reason that i, I associated that in, with that way is that so often in these conversations especially like and, and someone that's very you know very new to like environmental justice or climate justice work um it's that very often the conversations and kind of like that are people are having around climate change are very far off in the distance when the, the 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 impacts of climate change are are happening right now to to hundreds and thousands of communities throughout the world um, that that are that, that are experiencing like famine and harsh conditions as a result of it's not something that's far away but something that's happening right now. Absolutely, yeah. I've dealt with floods, and now we're at there's a fire situation. They have to be careful with fires. But yeah. the, the the thing is, people don't realize wherever you go now, wherever you move to, there is some kind of ecological damage that's associated with the climate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're seeing like here in Texas, it's like you, you're already seeing like the heat's coming, and they're they're saying record conditions been seen on the online. Same thing with the heat's happening like in the South Asia, um, in, in India, how it's like just climbing is just it's all it's happening everywhere for sure for sure but the next word is ukraine i think war just what's happening in ukraine now and how not everyday people whether it be in ukraine or in russia or in any country are experiencing that are that are experiencing war you know and and there's there's politicians there's corporations that are making extremely you know becoming extremely wealthier 
um, as a result of the war that's happening on the Ukrainian people, for sure. And a lot of people, they don't put those two things together, climate change and, and war, in particular, all, all wars. But uh, every war is going to be an environmental disaster, just like, you know, every climate disaster is going to be an environmental disaster as well. No, yeah, no, yeah. Just, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely like a, the connection that's there is like, you know, so often, you know, the climate and the environment are like the silent victims of uh, of war. Um, just because so much is, it, you know, um, you know, that the, the war machines that, you know, and when violence is happening, it's destructive not only to both human, but also to like ecological systems. And whether it be Ukraine or, or in Iraq, like a lot of these wars are fueled as a result of like extractive industry and profit driven, you know, around fossil fuels. So, yeah, it's definitely they're definitely linked and connected for sure. Um, OK, your next word, victory. I'd want to say like now, like victory. <laughs> like, yeah, we need, right need to win now, uh, but it's coming. I, I feel. I feel like when I think of victory, I think of like you know that nobody's free until everybody's free. You know, kind of like that's that's victory for sure. When everybody is, is able to, to to engage in this life uh, without having to worry about the you know these systems um, you know, continuing to harm us for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's the end of my list. I did have another question for you, though, because I, I heard you're a teacher, right? Yeah, I used to be. I used to be a teacher uh, uh, for a few years. Uh, I was I moved out of the, the field. But yeah, I was a I was a seventh and eighth grade social studies history teacher here in, in, in Dallas uh, for a few years. Yeah. Wow. What a fun, what a fun age. <laughs> you have to have thick skin for that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're definitely, that's the age where it's like, you know, like, you know, it's where you're trying to like engage them, they're looking for mentorship, they're looking for guidance, and it's a really, it's a really good age, you know, it's, a lot of people look at middle school as a, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, like a lot of the schools, just because of the kind of school system that we have, like, a lot of, uh, um, that's at the age that where um, the school system really looks to like dim, you know, dim their lights, right, rather than harm, rather than like, build up and support like that, the energy that, that they have and like direct it towards, uh, towards uh, something that's, that's productive and useful. They, they just look to tear down kids and kind of wear them down to where they're look to conform and stuff like that. So you've been a teacher and an organizer, and I had to ask the question, how are those two things alike or different? I think very much alike in the sense that um, as a teacher, and as an organizer, being part of this alliance, um, my role as, as a national organizer is ultimately to provide uh, resources and support to our members um, um, in, in engaging in the programming that, they, that they, they sought to, you know, want to engage in, right? So our membership voted for this anti-militarism program. So my job was to essentially support and, and engage our members in, in building their consciousness around the connections between militarism and the extractive economy. So ultimately it's like we had to do PE sessions, there, there's conversations, there's like, a, you know, uh, um, there the, I, I kind of could view it like the programming that they're having at their communities um, and in their organizations, almost like, you know, that, that's like uh, they're taking on projects, you know, class projects or whatnot. So in very much way, like there's this, um, there, there's the support of learning and growth. And being able to, how do you say it, like where you, a, autonomy, right? You're building up a person's autonomy and like um, the, their ability to be able to speak up for themselves and to and to engage in in this world from a place of like knowledge and understanding, kind of wanting to be able to overcome these obstacles. Sometimes it's our own, sometimes it's communities. Um, so very and very much so. That's the same thing I was doing also as a teacher when I was engaging 
students around like history and like certain historical events because they're like, what, what, you know, how does this have to do with anything that that's mm-hmm. happening today? And I'm like, this is how, and this is how you, this is how it's important. And also not only that, but you know, sometimes the kids would, um, you know, complain about certain things, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, how other teachers are treating them or, you know, how come they can't play after school and certain things. So I'm like, hey, you got to organize, you got to get together and you got to tell the principal, hey, you, they need to open up the gym, like, what, like something like, you know, so it was kind of like, that. I was able to engage them in that way too. So very much, I think teaching and organizing it, the, the way they're connected is, is just community building. Ultimately, that's what it is. Community empowerment for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. I was, you, when you were talking, it reminded me of my young son. He was in, when it, my youngest when he was in first grade. We were driving to school one morning. I don't know why, but I was just thinking about the fact that I just hated that school. Like I had to take you to every day and, and they just didn't like, I just didn't feel like he was getting the sort of, you know, support that he needed. And I was driving and I pull up and I let him out. And as he gets out, I go, give him hell, son. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he, he stopped what he was doing. He looked back at me and uh, I said, I mean, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. I have a lot of respect for people who do that. And definitely I can see that with my other friends who are now organizers that were teachers before. I can definitely see them carrying that over and they have unlimited patience usually. Yeah. <laughs> really used to it. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk, uh, talk a little bit more about um, like what happened at Loi La Vie when you were at our camp. Cause not the, the thing I do know is that you just came for like a day or two and was just helping like move some stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's very unfortunate that, uh, that you got arrested that day. I felt so bad. I was like, Oh man, that's just because that was not the plan. It was not the plan, right? Yeah, no, it wasn't the plan for sure. Yeah, I was I was only going for the weekend and then ended up like getting arrested. I was living in Mississippi at the time, you know, part of a, an active member of uh, of About Phase Veterans Against the War. You know, it's an organization of anti-war veterans, right? And the way that Louis Levy came about is that essentially I was, you know, um, uh, you know, because I was engaged in About Phase, because I was active in anti-militarism and anti-war work. Um, what do you call it? I was following and supporting, you know, our members that were active in, in Standing Rock and supporting the effort there. And as a result, like, you know, just keeping an I was keeping an eye and kind of wanting to, because I wasn't able to go to Standing Rock, I wanted to like support, you know, more local local and regional effort um, in, in pushing back against pipeline expansions and, the, and these, a lot of these fuels, fossil fuel companies and the way that they not only tear up our land, but go, you know, go into our communities and pollute our communities. I was following the campaign against the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. And then, you know, I was able to to head out to Louis Levy for the weekend. You know, at that time, I was like, um, I was uh, picking up, you know, my, my, I was, I would be the one that was, uh, my, my wife is a nurse. Um, so she had the, the, the day shift. You know, she's working 12 hours. And then so then ultimately it was up to me, like to be able to pick up my son from school. And so then I was like, okay, I can go for the weekend and be able to go and support like with logistics or supporting at camp, you know, cleaning up and visualize in the sense of that people are, are really, they know about the direct action and know what's happening, you know, when you're confronting power, but ultimately like what's the small tasks and things that they need to get done in order to kind of be able to allow those efforts to kind of move forward. So that was, that was the intention of me going out there was to go and to support essentially be a support role and kind of let folks that had been campaigning there for a while, kind of be able to get some rest. So I went to, went to go support and we went out into the swamp and that was my first time actually ever entering a swamp, right? Going on a boat and being able to go down down river and upstream and and being able to walk through through actual to the Atchafalaya 
a basin, you know, it's just, it was extremely beautiful because I was always driven from Mississippi to Texas, you know, driving through, mm-hmm. I haven't actually been able to explore. So that was actually my first time being able to explore it. So beautiful. And so we were out there and there was uh, an action. Essentially there was blocking the, the, the path of the pipeline. And then, uh, you know, some police officers, at least that we thought they were like, they're sheriffs, they're, 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 <laughs> right. they're actually sheriffs, but uh, essentially we didn't, you know, I didn't, we didn't know at the time that they were actually also on the, on the payroll of the, of the, the pipeline. Anyways, they went out there and uh, we were on the property that we had gotten invited by the, pro- the, the owners of that land um, to be able to go out there and essentially to, to, to defend their land against this injustice in the sense of like pipe, you know, the, the company was infringing on their and tearing up their land. So in the process of us just being out there, the police or the sheriffs that were the ones trespassing, you know, they, they're, you know, essentially, you know, they, you don't listen to what they're doing. Um, you know, they came up and they, they arrested us and took a, a whole group of us out. And we, you know, walked out down the, down the path and through the swamp for, I don't know, must've been like a mile or two miles. At least it felt like that, that way. And then you know, they took us out out of the swamp and they put us in in, in, the, in the county jail uh, for the day until supporters came out and, and took us out and you know, were able to bail us out. But yeah, we had those charges that those charges for dealing with for for a few years and you know still fighting those in the sense of the way that they violated our rights and saying that we were the ones trespassing when the, the courts ultimately decided that they were the ones that were trespassing. We were invited by the landowners and. They, so now we're still a part of a, of a case with the Center for Constitutional Rights where we're suing the, the parish and the state essentially for uh, violating our rights. What, what parish was that again? Do you remember? St. Martin? Uh, St. Martin. Yeah, St. Martin Parish. Yeah. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was actually just wondering. I, I've uh, been to several jails down there. And I was wondering which one. I want to visualize it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we still have pretty good food there, right? Or did yeah, you know yeah, that? the food's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I keep joking. I'm going to start a Yelp for like oh. jail food. <laughs> you know, like just I want to rate them. I want to rate them. Louisiana, Texas would be down on the list. I have to say, except for the food, especially in Louisiana, the food's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just really appreciate you doing that because you know we've had all these uh, critical infrastructure laws and anti-protest laws that have gone on in pretty much every state of the union and. So everybody's going to be watching this case to see set precedents, you know, for, for how other cases are going to go. So it's very important. And I'm glad that you're hanging in there and taking care of that. Um, hello, trying to do a podcast here. Mom, it's saying something. What's that little duck? I think he's talking about insurance. No, he's saying AF, as in he don't give an F. Hey, hey, Duck, this is a family show. The FBI's probably listening to this show. No, Mom, listen, he's saying something important, I think. You're right, Jaden. I think he's saying... Your perception on failure is relevant to your past experiences. I think he wants us to think more deeply about our personal relationship with failing. What's that? Oh, is that right? What did he say? He said our perception around failure can inhibit the success of a movement as it can in our personal lives. Fear can paralyze a person and the fear of failing is the first big obstacle we have to get over towards winning. What's this have to do with your podcast? Because when you're doing any sort of social justice campaign, you have to not mind failing. A lot. But if you keep your eyes on the prize and make a plan to win and a plan to fail, it takes the possibility of actually losing right off the table. You're right, Duck. A lot of people out there say to themselves, what can I do? Or you can't beat City Hall. But they don't realize it's not really about winning or losing. 
It's about doing your part and creating the most good and the most damage when you can. Hi again, FBI. <laughs> oh, duck, you quack me up. So you mentioned Iraq Veterans Against the War, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, because one of the reasons like I wanted to do this podcast was to talk a little bit more about why people should get involved, even if they know that there's a great chance that they're not going to do it and they're not going to win. Like, or you're not going to stop the pipeline, but uh, you give it your all for other reasons. And one of those things we can do is like, we can make a plan for what we want to get out of it. You know? So for Bloy La Vie, we had like four different goals that we had, like lift up the Atchafalaya Basin, you know, start a direct action campaign. And, and we were able to reach those goals. And so by the time we got to the end of it, we still felt really good. This court case, for instance, like this court case that you're in, like somebody had to be able to challenge those new laws and that, and we had that opportunity and we were able to take advantage of the opportunity to this day. Um, so things like that. But I was thinking, a lot when I was uh, I was thinking about some of your work, some of your earlier work, and I was thinking about how a lot of times people will say, I've heard people say many times now, there is no anti-war movement in the United States anymore. And I've also heard people say that the past anti-war movements were failure. And I was just uh, wanting to like bend your ear a little bit about how you felt. Is there any correlation between the structure that was built in the anti-war movements and today? Like it, it, where is where does the anti-war movement stand today? today so like for example you know iraq veterans against the war which is now um, about face you know it comes that very much out of the anti-war movement and and the vietnam's vietnam veterans um that were opposing the war in the you know the war in vietnam essentially ivaw comes out of veterans for peace which is another um, anti-war organization veteran organization that that's that's still very much active um, has chapters throughout the, the country. At the start of the Iraq war, um, veterans that had participated in Iraq saw that the, the reason that we were sent there was, was under false pretenses, right? It was, there was a, it was a lie um, in order to essentially in, invade and occupy a country. So very much a lot of the, the lessons and the, and the inspiration that was drawn from veterans that saw that their, their engagement in, in this war um, was wrong. Look to the the lessons that were taught during uh, during the anti-war movement, right during the civil rights era, um, because you know uh, one of the first few things that the IVAW did was to uh, open up coffee houses and, and you know GI rights coffee houses. Uh, there was one in Fort Hood, which is the largest army base uh, installation in the United States. There was a, it was called Under the Hood Cafe, and uh, what they would do is essentially was trying to organize active duty members essentially where they that were going to be deploying to to Iraq so there was these coffee houses that mirrored the coffee houses that were supporting GI um, resistors and, and and war resistors and anti-war activists during the the Vietnam era so there's definitely a lot of lessons that that came out that that, that we bring to into the present that would continue on to this day and when people talk about like the anti-war movement like there is no anti-war movement i think that the question kind of fails to acknowledge the fact that we all have a responsibility as far as being anti-war right so we're all part of this anti-war movement if it's particular kind of like organizations whether they be veteran i think there very much still is veteran organizations that are active but also that i think it ultimately comes down to like resourcing and funding, right? Where are 
these organizations, a lot of, you know, ultimately maybe that's another way of saying that is, uh, you know, maybe it's not, you know, veterans organizations that we're, that we're needing. We're needing to engage the, the veterans within our community, right? Because a lot of folks that are active, whether it be in, in housing justice work or active in immigrant rights work or active in, in environmental justice work, right? All these different like kind of, you know, feminist organizing, they all have veterans, maybe some are more, more forward and they're identifying as veterans than others, but they all have, there's all veterans that are part of all these you know, communities that are engaging with, the, with their neighbors to try and make this world a better place. And I think that because now in the present for a lot of younger folks, war has not been like the most defining kind of feature in their in their lives very few people actually do deploy go to, go to fight in wars that the united states is waging around the around the world right the us mm-hmm. has over over you know 370 or something military bases around the world as people kind of view like when you know ask this question like hey where is that the anti war movement i think um, because of so much that the United States government and, and institutions do in order to kind of you know, to 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 make the military the number one beloved kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. then it's very hard to kind of it's very hard to to move away from that kind of mindset, right? So even within like the the climate justice movement, many folks will mirror the the talking points of the of the U.S. government and say that climate justice is I mean that climate change is a is a national security threat. You know they'll mimic this because they feel that that's going to provide like a sense of urgency to to legislators to want to pass funding and to support you know efforts that are going to address climate change but you know for someone that's that understands the the language especially around national security is that climate change when you look at through through a martial lens then all it does is cement the further militarization of these institutions and look to suppress our, our communities you know, voices right so i think that you know the anti war movement Maybe it's not necessarily what we need in the sense of like trying to stop specific wars or conflicts. What we're needing is an anti-militarist movement that, that's aware of what the capitalism, the imperialism, the, the militarism that the U.S. government engages in. So it's, I think it's uh, rather than um, lean into like the anti-war movement, I think there's like all our movements that are that are happening now have to be more anti-militarist in, in their stances, right? So like um, if you're engaged in climate justice, that means that environmental justice has no borders and that what and that we're not going to throw other communities under the bus as we try and and, and build up our own kind of um, efforts as well. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I had actually heard a pretty big climate leader one time say, and they caught themselves, thankfully, but they had said it just in passing, you know, and they said, um, I don't know, like maybe someday they'll have solar panels on tanks. And uh, they caught themselves that I could tell. Like the goal would be not to have tanks, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so I thought at the time I thought, well, maybe these some of these larger climate leaders are not like bringing up the issue of militarization around climate because they fear potentially like older movements that they perceive to be anti-soldier or anti-veteran. And so they they feel like it's like maybe a tender's place to, to walk around, but that tender spot is not helping us to survive this climate crisis that we have right now. And so I just, I, I try to, and I will continue to try to challenge people who are speaking about the climate to really bring in militarization as a source. It is the largest source of climate change. And, and yeah. we're not talking about it. And that's that's just not smart. That's just not good strategy. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I think, like, you know, when we were in uh, in Glasgow for COP26, right, you know, GGJ and, and the It Takes Roots uh, Alliance, you know, we, we, we sent a delegation there and we were going with this intervention to to say that you know that here at this like international space where climate agreements and negotiations are happening that it's a crime that military is not on the table right the military missions aren't included in these conversations because oftentimes they're either excluded or they don't have to report the emissions that the militaries of the world of these governments don't have to like to report they don't have to like not only not report them but they don't have to reduce them and so then like um, now it's like because climate change is seen like as a national security threat, right? Because now that they have the media pundits and the politicians, uh, you know, the government has kind of put this narrative out there that you know climate change is a national security risk. Then now there's like going to be more and more funds being poured into the military industrial complex, right? So where it's like, how can we, as like the military, how can we continue? being as destructive as uh, as we can be in, to ecological and human systems they want to that the goal is to continue to doing as is in order to accomplish the mission so that means like just so you said you know tanks with solar panels right that's kind of like a an exaggeration but you know they're they're talking about retooling a lot of these military bases to become net zero you know net zero we know is a is a false solution it's essentially just a tool and a smokescreen for corporations including the military to be able to it's a smokescreen in order to continue to pollute. What does it make sense for there to be like a net zero military base um, that has electric vehicles and solar panels and wind power as these jets that are, are flying and taking off, polluting the air and, and the, the atmosphere to go drop bombs on, on communities throughout the world that are those same metals and those bombs uh, end up you know polluting the water and the land and, you know, and other places as well. So it doesn't make any sense when we're talking about greening the military, you know, it's a false solution. So it's like, rather than greening the military, we need, we need to lessen the military. We need to make it smaller, like a lot smaller. We need to you know, essentially shutter whole segments of the military completely, like close all this down. And, and that's something that, you know, at GGJ, we're trying to continue to push legislators, right? That um, if we are truly genuine about confronting climate change, then we need to address militarization. And, and that means that we need to, you know, clean up, remediate and transition a lot of these military bases and close them, right? Because the military is a, like the single largest consumer of fossil fuels, a number one uh, a client of the fossil fuel industry. So it makes sense when you have these lobbyist corporations, both weapons companies and the fossil fuel industries, whether it be Shell or Exxon or whatever, and a lot of these weapons companies, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, um, they're pouring funds into like media, but then also into lobbying legislators to continue pushing money uh, towards the, the military budget, right? That's what now it's, we're seeing the military budget can be over uh, $800 billion uh, this coming up year. It means that just continues to pour more money into uh, destructive, violent institutions that are there. They're also like that are also run on oil and gas and all these uh, extractive resources that are polluting and pushing us further into climate change. Right. Everybody has to start talking about it more in relation to climate change. And I think we all have to like come together and like find that common ground that we do have. And the earth is, <laughs> that's the one of the biggest common grounds that we have, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I remember, you know, as a matter of fact, there was a IVAW, right? There was IVAW in 2006, you know, participated in this uh, walk into New Orleans essentially was organized by Veterans for Peace. Um, and what they were trying to, to do was make the connection about the, you know, the war at home and the war abroad, right? And there was this, this uh, essentially this effort, this, this campaign that talked about, you know, every bomb dropped on Iraq explodes along the, the Gulf Coast. 
That's pretty powerful. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I think that's about it for us. I'll let you go. I know you got to pick up your kid from school and I do too. It's just a little later because you're in a different time zone. Yeah. Uh, did you have any last thoughts or anything you just wanted to share with everybody before we call it a wrap? Probably if I were to tell, um, you know, folks that are interested in, you know, engaging or in further deepening into the discussion around the intersection between militarism and climate change, check out Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. We have a, a campaign right now that's called No No War and No Warming, where we're engaging legislators to essentially to advance policies and so, support real climate solutions. And, you know, they advance policies like you know, cleaning up and closing military bases, right? Transitioning them into, you know, useful community and resilient, healthy uses, you know, reallocating funds from these institutions that, that propagate harm, continue to invest those into community resources, right? Rather than uh, investing in the military and prisons and police, let's invest in, in efforts that support and build up our communities. And then also just, um, you know, engaging legislators to try and, and move away from ending you know, move away and and end weapons manufacturing and, and war profiteering because a lot of these legislators are in the in the pockets of a big biz, big business, whether it be the extractive industry or or the the weapons manufacturers. You know, we have to break up that marriage between these legislators and the policies that they spawn are being sponsored. So continue to engage and support community. That's Appreciate how we do the it. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Thank you. All right, everybody, we're gonna let you go for the day. Talk to you later.